This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. While Canada used to be a leader in privacy protection, the world is now passing us by. Notably, new privacy laws or bills in the United States include several of the elements I recommend for Canada. And there is a risk that Canada's adequacy status under EU law will not be renewed in 2020, which would jeopardize Canadian trade. In its early years, the Internet was seen and promoted as an instrument for freedom. Now we see more clearly that it brings very important benefits, but also very grave risks to our values. It is time to put values and rights at the center of our privacy laws. Welcome back to the Law Bites podcast. There have been no shortage of developments over the past six weeks while the podcast was on hiatus, and I'm excited to launch a new round of episodes that will cover everything from broadcast and telecom reform to copyright to trade to privacy. We start this week with a special episode on privacy, as I'm joined on the podcast by Daniel Terrian, the Privacy Commissioner of Canada. Commissioner Terrian recently used Data Privacy Day to deliver a speech at the University of Ottawa focused on privacy reforms and a new consultation on AI and privacy. He joined me to talk about his term as commissioner, the major challenges he's faced, the state of Canadian privacy law, and the prospect for reform. Following our conversation, the podcast features audio of the commissioner's bilingual speech at the law school. But first, my conversation with the Privacy Commissioner of Canada. Commissioner Terry, and thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, it's a pleasure. You know, you were appointed as commissioner commissioner nearly six years ago, back in 2014. I assume time flies, um, and a seven year term must have seemed like a, a really long time when you started. But the summer of 2021 is sort of in view, notwithstanding the weather. I want to talk a bit about the about some of the current issues today and, and your your talk on on AI and privacy reform but I thought I might start with a couple of reflection questions first sure. what would you say now having been commissioner for over five years has been the biggest challenge that you think you've faced I think the biggest challenge obviously uh, I've been talking about law reform for a number of years and uh, so did Jennifer Stoddard my predecessor uh, and, and why is that? Why is it that privacy commissioners uh, talk about law reform and nothing much seems to happen in Canada? Uh, a big part of the uh, explanation, I think, has to do with the fact that privacy is a very abstract concept. So for a long time, uh, people were gra- grappling with uh, how do you protect this uh, thing that is somewhat abstract when the benefits of new technologies are so real and tangible in terms of access to information, in terms of the ability to socialize and for uh, simply commercial reasons. Uh, So this uh, difference between the abstract nature of privacy and the uh, tangible nature of the benefits, I think, explains a a lot. Now, uh, for the past few years, particularly with Cambridge Analytica, but also other uh, big uh, stories and and breaches that uh, we hear about almost every day, Uh, people see it now. They they see the uh, consequences of 
breaches of privacy, of violations of privacy, they are equally uh, important, and I think that uh, pushes government to uh, pay attention, and uh, now we have commitments to, to legislate. Whether we'll have the legislation that I would uh, find desirable is another matter, but at least it's a very good step uh, that the social consciousness of the issue is, is what it is now, and that government uh, sees a, a need to, to act. Yeah, so we've seen a, a big change over the last number of years. I think you're quite right in the public awareness and concern with privacy. And that slowly, I guess, filters through to governments. And I and, think so. And there's now some movement there. What's been the biggest surprise, would you say, over the last number of years? Hmm. Um, a, maybe I, I'll give you two surprises, a positive one and a not so positive one. A positive one uh, would be uh, the quality of the people at the office that I now had. Of course, from reading uh, the documents uh, and the quality of uh, what came from the OPC uh, under Jennifer Stoddard, I had a pretty good idea that the office was uh, excellent, but to, to work with these folks day in, day out uh, surprised me. It, it's really, I, I, I'm very fortunate to have people of that quality working with me. And uh, I think Canadians are very fortunate to have people with such passion and, and knowledge uh, working to protect uh, their privacy. On the not so positive side, uh, and that goes back to why are we not having law reform, uh, I think I'm surprised by the fact that there's no, there doesn't appear to be a common understanding of the environment in terms of privacy, whether it is being put, uh, respected or not. I, I have conversations with uh, industry and industry representatives still recently where I'm told, why do we need these changes? Uh, where is the evidence commissioner that privacy is being violated? Uh, and and I'm, I'm frankly surprised by that. I think we all have, uh, including industry, has an interest in having robust privacy legislation to enhance trust on, on behalf of, of uh, consumers. And if we, we have so divergent views of the environment, it makes it difficult to have a conversation around what would be good principles, but good principles that actually work in practice. Well, so if I, if I link your, your first response, uh, reflecting on uh, the challenges and how the public has changed its perspective on privacy, and then I take your biggest disappointment, that, that seems to suggest that it's the business community, or at least some that might be regulated, that are trailing behind? Do you, do you still I, feel I, that's I the case? Say, I wouldn't say it's universal, uh, but it is a frequent uh, view that I hear out there from the business community that uh, by and large they comply, uh, that there's not a huge problem, that with a few tweaks uh, we should be able to have uh, the law that, that we need, when uh, that's not the reality that I see, uh, and it's certainly not the perception of Canadians who are extremely concerned about uh, loss of control over their personal information. Yeah, no, I think that that's true. I mean, it is striking. I have to admit, I had conversations or recall conversations with Jennifer Stoddard, mm -hmm. who was expressing precisely the same kind of frustration at that point in time mm -hmm. that 
uh, she felt she was talking to a community that, that just didn't get it in terms of some of the concerns. And there was gradual changes, but um, as you say, that's, that, that's, been a, that's been difficult to change some of those, those cultural dimensions as well, I think, when it comes to, to those communities. You know, I, I started this podcast series almost a year ago in a conversation with uh, Elizabeth Denham. Who knew, who knew well is now the UK commissioner and obviously has a strong background in mm-hmm. Canada as a commissioner here mm-hmm. as well. Uh, she talked about the Canadian law needing updating. You've now said the same. I know that when you talk to government relations experts, they often say you, you, you can't ask for everything. You can, of course, but you pick your spots. Pick three issues, let's say, that are really the, the priority. If you had to do so, if you were called into, say, Navdi Baines' office, and hopefully you are from time to time, uh, and have the chance to have a conversation about uh, what needs to be done, what are the, the, let's say, the three issues that you feel are most urgent when it comes to reform? Um, in, in my annual report, I talk about two, and I'll add a third one, which is, I think, equally important, privacy by design. Uh, the three things would be uh, what I've advocated in the recent annual report, i.e. a rights-based approach to amending our privacy laws. Um, our privacy laws are data protection laws, uh, but the, I think these data protection laws have a link to the broader right to privacy, uh, and uh, our proposals seek to uh, make the bridge between data pro- the, the, the data protection laws that are PEPEDA and the Privacy Act uh, with a view to protecting the broader right to privacy, including ultimately the right for people to go about their activities in the digital world being free uh, of uh, unjustified surveillance either by the state or by corporations. Uh, we've seen the violations, we've seen the link between privacy and uh, democratic rights. So there is clearly a link between uh, robust privacy protection and the protection of human rights generally, equality, democracy, freedom. Uh, so my first ask would be that the, the new law be uh, have a rights-based approach, point one. Point two, enforcement. Uh, You can have all the best and most beautiful principles in a law, you need to enforce it. And it will not surprise your listeners, I think, to hear me say that uh, enforcement mechanisms need to be enhanced, uh, that it is no longer uh, effective for uh, for my office to only be able to make recommendations. Uh, our neighbors to the south uh, have a regime where the Federal Trade Commission can impose orders and fines. Uh, Europe has this. Other countries have this. There is absolutely no reason in the world why the regulator in Canada should not have the authority uh, as our trading partners to make orders and impose fines. Because at the end of the day, if these powers do not exist, uh, the corporations, the organizations, uh, will simply continue as they are, and it will be a cost of doing business uh, to uh, uh, have recommendations by the OPC. So the, the sanction does not need to punish per se, but it needs to be effective in uh, being uh, encouraging uh, companies to comply with the law. Point three, privacy by design, or a proactive approach to privacy. So enforcement is at the back end, 
Uh, but at the front end, it's equally important for both the public sector and the private sector to really think hard about privacy considerations as they set up programs, as they uh, uh, set up activities, commercial activities, particularly in the uh, artificial intelligence uh, area. Uh, the proposals uh, that we've put forward for comment uh, include the principle that uh, AI would be developed after privacy by design and human rights by design. Uh, that's equally important as enforcement. Okay, so I've, I've chosen three, but I've, I've chosen three broad ones, obviously. Well, you got to cast your net as wide as, <laughs> as you can when you get the chance. Uh, and I think those three provide a solid foundation for where you want to go. The, the government put forward, as you know, just before the, the election, I guess it was last spring, their Canada's Digital Charter that, that talked a bit about some of these kinds of reforms. What did you think of it? And were you actively consulted as they were putting some of their thinking forward? There are, there are good elements in the digital charter. Uh, the charter speaks of uh, giving Canadians more meaningful control. Uh, to uh, they, they talk about a right to erasure, uh, I believe, uh, portability of data. These are all uh, good things uh, to increase control uh, on the part of uh, individuals whose data is being processed is obviously uh, a good thing. And, and the Charter also uh, talks about meaningful consent and we've made recommendations, actually we've developed guidelines along those lines uh, a few years ago. So that's, that's all good. Uh, there are other aspects of the Digital Charter that make me worry uh, that what is a, already a very permissive law might be even more permissive in some uh, respects. I'll, I'll mention two things. One, uh, the reference to publicly available information, the fact that the proposal, the suggestion that perhaps uh, publicly available information would not be governed uh, by privacy legislation. Uh, there is a risk there that uh, what may appear to be publicly available is actually, there was never an intention to make it publicly available, uh, and that, that's an issue. Uh, I've talked uh, and I, I've written in previous reports about the fact that consent is very useful, but it is not complete in terms of affording privacy protection, and I've uh, suggested that perhaps exceptions to consent should be considered in a new law. The Digital Charter uh, describes these exceptions potentially as uh, standard business practices. That's also a concern that consent would be set aside uh, based on whether a practice has become a standard business practice. Clearly, uh, the fact that a company or a, a sector has adopted a certain standard practice uh, should not be sufficient to create an exception to consent. That is the, the epitome of self-regulation, uh, and uh, that, that does not properly protect Canadians. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that brings to mind one of, one of the early findings under Pipita, which I think involved uh, 
the the inserts in magazines where they were trying that they would often try to get people to subscribe to a, a particular magazine and the argument uh, from the industry around some of those kinds of issues in the data collection was this was standard practice mm-hmm. and I think the commissioner's office quite rightly said well mm-hmm. standard practice doesn't necessarily mean that it's compliant with the law mm-hmm. and, and found that it was offside the law the the consent issue though is I think a really interesting one and you talked a bit about it um, in your talk as well so if if we're going to shift away or broaden our our thought about how we approach the issue of consent and standard business practice kind of reflects a self-regulated model. What are some of your thoughts about how we can ensure that consent is more reflective of genuine consent when people are, you know, asked to provide, obviously, their consent for the use of their information? I would would answer by saying that I think there are three important actors in ensuring that privacy is protected. The individual whose data uh, is at play is, of course, an important player, and consent, the consent regime, is relevant to that. So there is a place for consent, and it is par- part of a new uh, and uh, enhanced regime needs to include more meaningful uh, rules for more meaningful consent. But consent uh, cannot be the only way in which pri- uh, privacy is, is protected. We see that, I think, uh, there will be a consultation period on on this question. But a good example of the limits of consent, uh, I think, is in the artificial intelligence area, where uh, data is collected for a certain purpose and may be used for a totally different purpose that the processor or the organization uh, does not know about until after the, the processing or the the uh, machine uh, has done its calculations. So how do you uh, have consent in, in that area uh, among others? So I think consent is good, but there are limits, and therefore there needs to be other actors. Organizations are also part of the solution, and that refers, of course, to the accountability principle. So there is, it's important that uh, organizations be accountable and be demonstrably accountable. But at the end of the day, somebody needs to act for citizens, for consumers, and that is the state, it is the government. Uh, when you go on an airplane, uh, you don't uh, sign a form where you consent to the security measures that have been taken to ensure that you will go from point A to point B. And there is an analogy to be made there uh, that it is uh, not effective to uh, allow organizations to process information only on the basis of the consent given by the individual. However meaningful it may be, the, the difference in power and knowledge between organizations and individuals is such that somebody needs to take uh, the place of the individual to ensure that privacy is effectively protected, and that is the government through uh, appropriate legislation, through effective, robust enforcement, and other measures. Right. I mean, and obviously the, the enforcement side falls to the privacy commissioner. Um, the digital charter included one other recommendation, and that was to create a new data commissioner. Mm-hmm. Um, you have any thoughts on on what a data on how a data commissioner would be any different from a privacy commissioner, and and how those two offices might interact? At this point, this is still uh, a bit of a mystery. Um, 
it depends on the subject matter. So the, the reference to the data commissioner comes with, in the digital charter, with a, a reference to new regulations for big tech. Uh, I think the, the main question is, what is the subject matter of these regulations? Are we talking about privacy? Are we talking about competition? Are we talking about online hate? Are we talking about disinformation? Uh, I, I would have a concern if the, these regulations uh, overseen by a data commissioner uh, created a, an important overlap with PEPEDA and with privacy regulations. But uh, I don't know that this is uh, the case, and it could be that the data commissioner would uh, enforce uh, issues other than, than privacy. And if that's the case, I would have absolutely no concern. And ultimately, I would say that in the digital world as well, equally as in the brick and mortar world, there needs to be a number of regulators applying a number of uh, specific legislation. And I would actually encourage that. And there's, there are clearly gaps in the regulations of certain subject matters in the digital world. So if the data commissioner deals with other matters, absolutely. Uh, and we should be able to cooperate with other regulators. If this commissioner uh, is responsible for privacy, well then you know, there, there might be confusion, uh, which I'm not sure is desirable. Yeah, no, it, it, it strikes me even with the AI consultation that, that you've just launched. I mean, obviously it's providing a privacy frame for AI. Um, and with a data commissioner, one might say, well, they might that kind of role might also want to look at AI, but of course doing so through a somewhat different lens. That would be very possible. I think, again, uh, there are many uh, rights and protections that are needed in the digital world, and I obviously do not claim that the privacy commissioner should regulate it all. Uh, a good regime generally would address all of these potential harms and protect rights. Uh, and would ensure that uh, however number of regulators can work together, because there will be overlap, there will be links, uh, but it is very normal that there would be a number of statutes and a number of oversight bodies to oversee them. Yeah. Um, one of the areas that we've been talking obviously about PIPEDA, but um, you, you mentioned briefly the Privacy Act, I think, in one of your responses. Mm -hmm. and it seems to me that the Privacy Act has been one of those statutes that I think it's quite the case that quite literally every privacy commissioner ever has raised years, concerns. I'm, I'm, uh, I've seen a, a something recently that says that uh, the, the first recommendations for change uh, to the Privacy Act are at least 15 years old. Yeah. So it's been around for a very long time, and that issue seems to get practically no traction at all. Have any thoughts about why that is? Um, well, I've said uh, about uh, privacy legislation generally, the abstract nature uh, of, uh, of privacy is, is a factor there as well. Um, in Canada, people have uh, overall a fairly high level of confidence in government. That is changing, uh, but that might be another uh, reason why there is less uh, of a call for uh, reform of the public sector law. But uh, things are changing, and people are concerned overall about privacy protection. What I would say, I guess, two things. 
One, uh, the public sector should lead by example in terms of privacy protection. So principles that would apply to corporations should, should at least apply to uh, the public sector. Um, and uh, another important reason to regulate the pu public sector is that the public sector increasingly relies on the private sector uh, for the delivery of certain services. There is a lot of information sharing between the public sector and the private sector. Uh, and therefore, uh, at least at, at a high level of generality, the principles governing both sectors uh, should have some similarity. Yeah. No, I, and, and perhaps we will see s some movement on that, but uh, I mean, I think the case is a robust case for why we need to see reforms. It's been, I think, a source of frustration for a lot of people mm -hmm. that it's been hard to get traction. The, the Canadian laws, whether private sector or public sector, obviously exist within a broader global sphere, and we often take a look at what, what's happening elsewhere. You made reference to some of the enforcement powers in the United States, and of course it's the EU that's mm -hmm. been a, a major leader in the space. Um, Canada received many years ago a finding of adequacy with respect to its privacy laws. Uh, do you think in light of the changes that we've seen in the EU, moving ahead with the GDPR, that once they take a look once again at Canadian law, that Canadian law at this stage would meet that adequacy standard? Uh, I think there is a real risk that uh, Europe would not find Canada's laws as they stand to be, to be adequate. Uh, there's a real risk. Uh, if you look at enforcement, for instance, uh, you know, Canada has uh, uh, high-level principles in PIPEDA that are uh, inspired by uh, international rules, uh, so to that extent there might be adequacy. Uh, but uh, enforcement uh, powers are clearly not the same, so that would be an important factor for uh, Europe. But at the end of the day, uh, I would say we need to improve laws uh, in Canada in part uh, to make sure that uh, our laws are continue to be found adequate. But obviously, it's tried to say uh, it's for the protection of Canadians. Yeah. Um, just a couple last questions. One of the issues, your office has been involved in a number of different issues with consultations that have certainly sparked a fair amount of uh, commentary, at a minimum, from the privacy community, uh, perhaps none more so than on the outsourcing accountability issues that we saw. The office has kind of shifted a bit in response and was responsive to some of those concerns. Can you provide a bit of insight into, into some of that process and explain a bit why you landed where you did? Sure. So I'm always looking for ways to have effective privacy protection for Canadians. And in the context of outsourcing, uh, particularly in a trans-border context, uh, I was concerned that although there are protections, that the protections were not effective. Uh, so that, that's the starting point. Uh, I would add that obviously I have uh, a lot of respect for the rule of law and I would never uh, adopt a legal interpretation that I know is wrong simply to advance a policy position. I would never do that. That said, uh, law is not an exact science, and interpretations are not immutable. 
So I advanced a, an interpretation of the law that uh, I thought and still think is uh, arguable, uh, that people uh, found uh, they disagreed with and that, that it would uh, create uh, important uh, practical adverse consequences for uh, organization. So I, I took note of that. Uh, and uh, we decided not to change our position under the current law, uh, but I'm still looking for uh, effective ways to protect privacy in a transborder context in light, of course, of Canada's international uh, obligations. And so uh, I will look to the future and to future law uh, for, that, for that point. Okay. Well, speaking of the future, let's wrap with one last question. It's imagine it's January twenty, uh, June rather, twenty twenty one. Term, your term is nearing an end. Where do you where do you see Canadian privacy law, eighteen months from now? Are you an optimist that we're going to see the kinds of reforms that you've been advocating for? Well, first of all, uh, some commissioners have extended their terms this beyond seven true. years, so I'm not dead yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, where will we be in 18 months? I think a bill will have been introduced uh, to uh, reform the private sector law. It will probably not be adopted by then. It will uh, include uh, the positive elements I mentioned of the digital charter. I hope it doesn't have the uh, more permissive elements of the digital charter. So we'll see. We, we, we're, uh, as they say, living in exciting times. There's a a uh, very important discussion to be had in the coming months on the content of this legislation. Uh, I think there will be improvements, so to that extent I'm optimistic, uh, and we'll see uh, whether it goes as far as I would like. Right. Well, it's quite clear, I think you're right. It is interesting times, exciting times, and the debate is sure to continue when it comes to privacy. Uh, Commissioner Tarian, thanks so much for joining me you're on welcome. the podcast. It was my pleasure. On January 28, 2020, Data Privacy Day, Commissioner Tarian visited the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law to deliver a lecture on privacy. Here is the audio of his opening remarks. Merci beaucoup, uh, Martin. Uh, I'll speak in uh, both official languages. I'll start in French, uh, and then uh, we'll move on in English, if that's uh, okay. Alors, comme le professeur Martin Barito l'a mentionné, je ne suis pas étranger à ce campus. Je suis diplômé euh, de la Faculté de droit civil euh, de l'Université d'Ottawa. J'ai plusieurs souvenirs, évidemment, euh, en rentrant au pavillon fauteux. Entre autres, je me souviens du rire communicatif et difficile à manquer du doyen Gérald Baudouin à l'époque. Euh, je me souviens aussi d'une rencontre fortuite euh, avec quelqu'un qui, qui visitait, je pense, un dénommé Ken Dryden, qui est un de mes héros euh, sportifs. J'ai vu en quelque part un chandail des Maple Leafs de Toronto. Là, je ne sais pas si on est capable de s'entendre sur les questions de, de sport ou de, de vie privée. Euh, alors, ça me date un peu, évidemment, ces événements-là qui datent des années 80. Euh, nous sommes maintenant en 2020 et non pas en 1980, évidemment. Et en tant qu'étudiant qui, qui examine la façon dont la technologie touche la société, vous savez que pour les, le meilleur et pour le pire, les technologies axées sur les données constituent une force perturbatrice. 
data-driven technologies for both good and bad are a disruptive force. Il est clair qu'elles procurent ces technologies de grands avantages aux individus et qu'elles ouvrent la voie à la croissance économique, à des avancées importantes dans les soins de santé, la protection de l'environnement, entre autres. Mais beaucoup trop souvent, il a été démontré qu'elles sont euh, préjudiciables pour les droits. Des atteintes à la vie privée se produisent chaque jour, comme on le sait. Des reportages dans les médias traitent tous les jours d'une nouvelle fuite de données, d'une mauvaise utilisation de la biométrie, de surveillance par géolocalisation, d'assistants personnels intelligents, de discrimination dans les systèmes d'intelligence artificielle, de propos haineux sur Internet ou de désinformation minant le processus démocratique. Il va sans dire que la loi n'a pas suivi l'évolution de la technologie. Et cela ne se limite pas à ce qu'on rapporte dans les médias. Au commissariat, nous recevons des milliers de plaintes tous les ans de personnes qui croient que leur droit à la vie privée a été enfreint. Et en moyenne, 80 de ces plaignants ont raison. C'est-à-dire qu'après enquête, nous, nous constatons que 80 de ces plaintes sont fondées. In that context, where, among other things, most complaints that we receive at the Office of the Privacy Commissioner are found to be well-founded, a key question is, what is the role of law and of democratically elected government if not to protect citizens in the face of harmful conduct? Of course it is the role of government, but for a long time, people said, what harm? Technology is so cool. It gives us access to so many things. Who cares if I give up a little bit of privacy? In any case, I have nothing to hide. What harm could possibly happen to me? Well, we now know. Privacy violations lead to loss of freedom, democracy, equality, and even physical security. My predecessors and I have for a long time called for reform of privacy laws. And this was ignored for an equally long time, I think, in part, if not in large part, because privacy is such an abstract concept. Now, things have become real, and government has promised to act. The question is no longer whether privacy laws should be modernized, but how. Because data-driven technologies have been shown to be harmful to privacy and other rights, I think the starting point to law reform should be to give privacy laws a rights-based foundation. A central purpose of the law should be to protect privacy as a human right in, of it, in and of itself and as an essential element to the realization and protection of other human rights. Currently, Canada's federal privacy laws are narrowly framed as data protection statutes. As such, PEPEDA and the Privacy Act codify a set of rules for how organizations and federal government institutions are required to handle an individual's personal information. But privacy is much broader than data protection, although data protection seeks to participate in the protection of privacy. Neither law, neither of the statutes I cited, formally recognizes privacy as a right in and of itself.
The right to privacy is also, as we know, an internationally recognized right. Both the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and ICCPR, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, provide that all persons have the right to be free from arbitrary interference with their privacy, family, home, or correspondence, and further, the right to the protection of the law against such interference. Canada is a signatory to both the Declaration and the ICCPR, and therefore has obligations under international law to protect privacy. While freedom from interference with privacy has traditionally been used to refer to protection from state interference, say in a law enforcement or national security context, the U UN Human Rights Committee has adopted a much broader interpretation. It has said that the ICCPR requires states to protect individuals from interference with their privacy, not just by the state, but also by other persons, legal and natural. Therefore, it can be applied to interference by private entities. Surveillance capitalism comes to mind. Privacy goes well beyond privacy policies. Too often, privacy is seen through the lens of website terms and conditions leading to a less than meaningful form of consent. This narrow view puts people at a distinct disadvantage when faced with organizations with immeasurably more knowledge and power. Indeed, technical rules in place to protect personal data, such as consent, access, and transparency, are important mechanisms for the protection of privacy, but they do not define the right itself. Privacy is nothing less than a prerequisite for freedom the freedom to live and develop independently as a person, away from the watchful eye of a surveillance state or commercial enterprises, while still participating voluntarily and actively in the regular day-to-day -day activities of a modern society, such as socializing, reading the news, getting information about health issues, or more simply, buying stuff. It is that right not the right to consent or not based on 30-page unintelligible privacy policies that the law needs to protect. As I noted earlier, the Privacy Act and PIPEDA are data protection laws. If these laws are to be to meaningfully protect the broader right to privacy, this goal needs to be reflected more explicitly in the formulation of our data protection statutes. To that end, my latest annual report, tabled in December, suggests the adoption of model preambles and purpose statements, one for each act, as a means to entrench privacy in its proper human rights framework. These texts offer a means to bridge the gap between data protection and privacy. They would serve to provide guidance as to the values, principles, and objectives that should shape how the data protection principles in both federal acts are interpreted and applied. For instance, consent that might otherwise be considered meaningful and valid under the relevant PIPEDA principle could be found invalid under our proposed purpose clause, which provides that the processing of data must respect the fundamental right to equality, of course, if consent leads to a violation 
of equality in a given case. Conversely, a medical research use based on consent whose validity may be questionable as potentially not sufficiently informed could be made lawful under the purpose clause, providing that privacy rights must be balanced with what the public interest requires. And the preambular clause, which says that responsible processing of data can serve public interests such as healthcare in a borderline case where it's not clear whether consent is meaningful or not. The preamble and purpose clauses that we suggest should be adopted, including the fact that data may be used for public interests such as improvement to healthcare, could help regulators and the courts interpret the situation in light of these objectives. For this approach of using preambles and purpose clauses to bridge the gap between data protection and privacy and to entrench our data protection laws in their human rights framework, I want to pause here and offer my thanks to Professor Teresa Scassa for her work uh, with our office uh, and our work in particular on a rights-based approach to privacy. She was a very important contributor to the development of our position, and Theresa, thank you very much. Now, the main benefit of a rights-based privacy law is, of course, to protect privacy in all its breadth and scope as a fundamental human right and as a prior condition to the exercise of other fundamental rights. But I also said at the outset that laws have difficulty keeping up with technology. The pace of technological developments is exponential, and it is simply not possible for the law to be amended at the same speed. This is an argument advanced by industry and government for a principles-based privacy legislation, but it also lends support for a law that defines privacy in its broadest and true sense. Techno Technical protections, such as defining what information is required for meaningful consent, are often ineffective as they are regularly overtaken by developments in technology. Think of AI. However, the values that underpin the right to privacy are unlikely to change significantly over time. Defining privacy in its full sense, in accordance with its underlying values, would, I think, ensure it continues to be protected regardless of technological changes. Now, I'm not saying that this would mean the law would become relevant uh, forever, but the point is if the law is drafted with a view to protect uh, fundamental values and principles, it is more likely to be more effective and more relevant for a longer period. There will, of course, need to be amendments uh, from time to time based on the evolution of technology, social norms, legal norms. Dans la perspective imminente d'une nouvelle loi, certains intervenants du milieu des affaires se sont dit inquiets des répercussions sur l'innovation. Une loi fondée sur les droits n'est pas un obstacle à l'innovation. A rights-based law is not an impediment to innovation. Au contraire, De bonnes lois sur la protection de la vie privée sont essentielles pour favoriser la confiance dans les activités gouvernementales et commerciales. 
you may have read uh, in the news uh, from Davos, uh, Mr. Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, uh, being quoted to say something along the lines of, if there is one thing that uh, would be an impediment to innovation and economic growth in the fourth industrial revolution, it would be not to deal with the problem of trust that consumers and citizens have in the way in which their data is protected. So in his view, privacy law, strong privacy protections, rights-based privacy laws are not an impediment to innovation. To the contrary, having trust in how data is, is uh, treated, is processed, is used, is a necessary condition for the healthy development of the, uh, of the economy which in the fourth industrial revolution uh, has a, as its prime element of production data. Notre objectif en proposant une loi fondée sur les droits n'est pas d'être un, un empêchement à l'innovation, au contraire, c'est plutôt d'instaurer des balises démocratiques pour une innovation responsable qui sert le bien commun. Dans le préambule et l'énoncé d'objet de la LPR-PDE, la loi du secteur privé que nous avons pro euh, proposée, nous avons veillé à ce que soit reconnu l'intérêt légitime des organisations à recueillir, utiliser et communiquer des renseignements personnels à des fins appropriées. So the law should ensure, should be interpreted, should be applied as to protect privacy rights. But the law that we suggest be adopted would explicitly recognize the legitimate interests of corporations to uh, collect, use, and disclose information for reasonable purposes. Cela contribuerait à donner le poids qui s'impose aux droits d'une part et aux intérêts commerciaux légitimes d'autre part. Nos propositions comprennent aussi des exceptions au consentement qui faciliterait l'utilisation de technologies novatrices lorsqu'il est impossible d'obtenir le consentement, par exemple dans certaines situations mettant en jeu l'intelligence artificielle. So, as a way to recognize and facilitate innovation in the use of new technologies, uh, and this is not a new proposal, it's something that uh, we suggested in our consent report of a few years ago, we say that uh, the privacy law governing the private sector uh, should uh, improve the meaningfulness of consent, as the government is suggesting in its charter, the di digital charter, should be based on uh, a human rights law approach, uh, but should also uh, recognize that consent, uh, while useful in certain situations, is not always effective as a means to protect privacy, and therefore we recommend that there be exceptions to consent for purposes that need to be defined, frankly. Is it the public good? Is it legitimate commercial interests? What is it? Uh, so that, that's a discussion to be had, uh, but we recognize that effective privacy protection cannot depend only on consent. So on that, in that vein, uh, of uh, having a law that recognizes uh, the legitimate use 
of information in the face of uh, new technologies, in particular artificial intelligence. Today my office is making public a consultation document on how the law should be framed to govern artificial intelligence. We note, of course, that AI systems present a significant challenge to all PIPEDA principles, notably data minimization, purpose specification, and openness, and that AI has been linked to discriminatory uses. We make in our consultation paper several proposals for a new law in line with our rights-based approach and seek comments from experts in the field as to whether these proposals are practical, would they work, and would result in the responsible development and implementation of AI systems. We think it is time that the governance of AI move from ethical considerations to enforceable rules of law. A brief word on an argument we sometimes hear in relation to our rights-based approach, namely that it may fall outside the authority of the Parliament of Canada as encroaching on the jurisdiction of provincial legislatures over property and civil rights. We respectfully disagree with that view. In our opinion, jurisdiction over property and civil rights essentially extends to the province's jurisdiction over private law. Civil rights, in the sense of Section 92.13 of the Constitution Act 1867, must be distinguished from civil liberties of the kind protected by the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Professor Hogg has expressed a similar view in his writings, although not explicitly in, in relation to privacy. We think privacy is a civil liberty, not a civil right in the private law sense. Privacy is also one of those cross-cutting values that does not fall within the exclusive jurisdiction of any single level of government. That much is clear. We see laws that protect privacy both provincially and federally. As a result, the constitutionality of any privacy statute will depend upon the underlying area or subject matter that is regulated. And in the case of PIPEDA, the subject matter is commercial activities. It is concerned with trade as a whole rather than a particular industry, and Parliament has jurisdiction over this under the Trade and Commerce head of Section 91. En conclusion, le Canada a déjà été un chef de file en matière de protection de la vie privée, et il semble malheureusement que le monde a une longueur d'avance sur nous. À ses tout débuts, l'Internet était considéré et présenté comme un instrument au service de la liberté. À présent, nous voyons plus clairement qu'il est source de nombreux avantages, mais aussi de risques très sérieux pour nos valeurs. L'heure est venue de mettre les valeurs et les droits au cœur de nos lois sur la protection des renseignements personnels. The time is right to put values and rights at the center of privacy protection laws in Canada. Merci de votre attention et j'espère que cela va susciter un certain nombre de questions. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Law Bites Pod 
or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.